On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Tom Ward about his new book on John Donne's SCOTUS. So we cover all sorts of your favorite SCOTUS topics. Who is SCOTUS? Why is he not as admired as he should be? What is his understanding of how we predicate things of God? Should we think of his view as controversial in any sense? How does he compare or contrast with someone like Thomas? Should we be skeptical of SCOTUS in any sense? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I'm joined by the book review editor for the London Lyceum, Hunter Heinzman. And today we are going to be talking about John Dunn's SCOTUS. So that fits really well with who we are as a podcast. We're, we're a podcast is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. Um, and so when you talk about SCOTUS, you've got to think he's probably one of the most serious thinkers in the Christian tradition. So this should be a lot of fun. Um, when I try to explain what we do at the London Lyceum, I mean, yes, we're about serious thinking, but we're more than just that. We want to promote certain virtues like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So we see that there is a confessional status narrowly in, in the Christian tradition, things like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, that we want to say, yes, let's champion, circle around these things, let's uphold these things, let's uh, cheerfully bring them forth. But we also, for me and Hunter and others, we want to say we're Baptists. Uh, we want to be robustly, thickly Baptist, but we talk to everybody uh, all across the spectrum um, that's part of what we want to do with showing charity is just exploring other people's ideas and understanding them because it's both fun and it's stimulating and I think it's encouraging too. So today again, we're talking SCOTUS with Dr. Tom Ward. Now, those of you who are faithful listeners of the podcast, you've heard Dr. Ward with us before. Uh, we talked about divine ideas with him and his book with the Cambridge Elements series. So if you haven't gotten a copy of that book yet or listen to the episode, I'll drop notes in the show notes below and you can go click it and go find them and go read and listen. I think Dr. Ward is one of the more uh, cool scholars out there um, and not cool just because he has one of the most excellent mustaches that you can can find, but cool because he's just an awesome person and he writes in a way that's very understandable, uh, even on very difficult topics. So it's always a delight to have Dr. Ward with us. So I, I want to commend all of his stuff. If you want to go Google him now and go find his CV and go find all his books, go ahead and do that. I'd recommend you doing that. Um, but before we do anything more, Dr. Ward, before give me you know the high level summary. Who are you? What are you doing? Um, what made you interested in thinking about SCOTUS for I don't know how many years it's been now, 15, 20 years maybe, or more. I don't know. Like it's Oftentimes people don't get interested in SCOTUS. They get interested in other people. So it's just I want to know a little bit about that origin story there too. Yeah, thanks, Jordan. It's, it's good to talk with you again. And Hunter, it's good to meet you. Um, I really appreciate the work that you guys are doing. Uh, and keep it up. Keep up the good work. Um, SCOTUS, is a, uh, he's a difficult figure to love, an acquired taste, you might say. I remember reading SCOTUS as an undergraduate 20 years ago now and uh, had heard he was important. Was I was already interested in Aquinas and uh, philosophy and theology in the Middle Ages in general. So I thought, well, I better try to learn something about SCOTUS. And I picked up that that anthology that um, I think a lot of people start with, uh, Alan Walter's um, Philosophical Writings, of Dun Scotus, published by Hackett a long time ago, and he has the famous question about univocity in there, and 
uh, Scotus's epistemology and Scotus's argument for God's existence. And I, I opened that book up and spent an hour or so and could make nothing of it at all. It, it, it just didn't register as meaningful sentences. <laughs> so I put it down and I just ran in terror. Um, and it wasn't until four or five years later, uh, I was uh, reading um, Trinitarian metaphysics with Marilyn McCord Adams at Oxford. And she did a seminar. We did a close read of, of, of Scotus on the Trinity. It was super hard, but really interesting. And that kind of lodged this, you know, this, this guy's hard, but there's something there. And then later on in my PhD, which was on medieval natural philosophy, uh, I just found myself getting more and more drawn into Scotus's arguments for his version of hylomorphism, you know, the, the, the view that material objects are composed of not just matter, but also form. And uh, so I ended up writing a dissertation on SCOTUS on that topic. And then in the course of doing that, I, I just end, ended up learning a lot and kept, I was interested in just about everything I learned about SCOTUS. So then I just kept up with it. And in, in a way, I'm an accidental SCOTUS scholar because like you mentioned, it is getting on 15 years of um, mostly publishing on SCOTUS. And I mean, I'm happy to have done it, but it's not how I originally imagined my my career going. I thought I was just gonna, I thought I thought I was going to be a Thomist and um, and just uh, make Aquinas um, sing and and make Aquinas accessible to students and and I you know I, I love I love Aquinas and if I had to take one on the desert island with me, I'd rather have Aquinas. I think, but but Scotus has been a, a great companion, and uh, I'm hope I, I, I hope I'm kind of coming to the end. I'd like to transition uh, away from SCOTUS, but not 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 because I've uh, lost interest, but just you know I only have one life here uh, to uh, to read books, and there are a lot more books to read. So I just wrote a book, an introductory book on SCOTUS that I hope is a kind of swan song, if you will. Um, it won't be the last thing that comes out, but but you know the last kind of my last word, um, and that's coming out actually. On November eighth, which um, Catholics uh, celebrate as the feast day of John Duns Scotus, so that that book is called "Ordered by Love," and I, I hope it'll make it makes make Scotus as accessible as he can be made. Uh, he's it's you can't write Scotus for dummies. Uh, Sister Mary Beth has a book called Scotus for Dunces, which is which is quite nice, but that doesn't mean it's easy. Uh, but hopefully, more accessible than he otherwise otherwise would be. Well, Dr. Ward, since you've just said you can't do a SCOTUS for dummies, um, could you just give us a, a brief introduction? I know many of our listeners are probably very familiar with the name SCOTUS, but they may not know much about who he was. Um, so would you mind just give us an introduction of who was SCOTUS and you know why isn't he as admired as he should be or should he be more admired? Just Could you mind just speaking to that a little bit? Yeah, I think one of the most important things to know about Duns Scotus is that he was a Franciscan friar, and he was a, a a Franciscan friar born about forty years after the uh, after Saint Francis founded his order. So, still within those first few generations of of early Franciscans, you know, and they were they were still having conversations about how to live out that extreme Franciscan poverty and how that related to the life of study. Um, Scotus was 
just in the thick, not of that particular polemic, but but that moment in the Franciscan order. And one of the key emphases of the Franciscan intellectual tradition, especially early on, was was uh, an emphasis on on God's love, uh, not as opposed to God's rationality or wisdom, but but as a particular emphasis on divine love, and likewise an emphasis on human love or human willing, uh, again, not opposed to human rationality or human intellect, but, uh, but at least a, a kind of special emphasis. There's also a Franciscan emphasis from early on on the person of Christ in, in his humanity and even in his, um, in his crucifixion. There's like intense focus on Christ crucified. And uh, the incarnation for Scotus was one of, uh, you know, pr- I think of it as the linchpin of all of his theology. Um, if you wanted to do a, a systematic theology that was thoroughly Scotist, I think you'd start with the incarnation. But um, so that's that's kind of a little bit of background. Franciscan, you got to know that he's a Franciscan. And then um, he was uh, born in 1265, died young, early 40s, 1308. He had a, um, in some ways, a, a, f- a fairly standard career for a, a really smart Franciscan uh, theologian. He he started off at Oxford um, because he was he entered the Franciscans through the English province. Um, although he was born in Scotland, uh, the, the the town that he was born in was part of the English province. So he went off to Oxford. Some think he might have spent time in Cambridge, but had most of his formation anyway in Oxford, and then was sent to Paris to continue studying. And Paris at the time was the, you know, the university uh, in Europe, the intellectual heart of Europe. And he spent a long time there before getting the the top Franciscan teaching job. And he had that probably uh, 1304 to 1306. And then for reasons we don't know, he was uh, sent away, sent away from Paris uh, right after completing his term as the, uh, as, as the Franciscan master. And he was sent to Cologne, Germany, where there was a Franciscan house of studies. It was a relative backwater intellectually. Um, so it's a little bit of a mystery why he was sent there, and, and within a year, he died, and we don't know why. And he's buried in Cologne. Um, so in, said like that, it's a fairly standard academic track for a Franciscan theologian. He had one sort of interesting uh, a period of, of exile where uh, the uh, King Philip uh, of France required all the intellectuals at Paris to sign a, a document supporting uh, Philip's cause over Pope Boniface VIII's cause, uh, and, and and Scotus refused to sign that, um, and so he had to leave Paris for a couple of years. He may have gone to Cambridge, may have gone back to Oxford, we're not sure. But when we look at... Um, we just don't know that much about his life other than what I've already told you. Um, so when we look at his writings, yeah, he wrote a lot, but they were left in a very disorderly state. So a typical kind of first book for a, a, a scholastic intellectual would be a, a commentary 
on Peter Lombard's Sentences, which was a, a 12th century um, theology textbook that became extremely influential, sort of like the standard theology curriculum. Um, Scotus produced, depending on exactly how you count, he produced about three of these commentaries on the sentences. And uh, the the second of the three, the Ordinatio, was supposed to be kind of the magnum opus that was the the most carefully edited, edited, the most complete. And even that work, uh, for all the time that Scotus obviously put into getting it together, even that one isn't complete. And then the others um, are, are not complete either. And then it, he has the additional works like his uh, quad libido questions, which were, you know, are, are pretty polished, but also by the nature of the genre of a quad libido dispute. You know, these were formal academic events where the master would be there kind of on the hot seat and students and other faculty could just ask him questions about anything. Um, so those are important, but they don't give a systematic whole to Scotus's writings. And then there are a few minor works as well, but the the disorderly state of his writings, I think, is a part of the explanation about why he's not as well known, say, as 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 Aquinas, who you know had this master gift of of not just philosophical and theological brilliance, but organization, and and he was he was a teacher uh, in his in the way that he wrote, he was a teacher as much as he was a uh, a world class thinker. Where Scotus didn't quite have that that pedagogical sensitivity in the way that he wrote, and so he's a very intimidating thinker, um, even for specialists. You know, I, I gave a talk last year uh, um, at the University of Notre Dame, and medieval scholars were in the audience, including some Scotus scholars. And you know, it was it was a kind of high level talk, but you know, I ended the talk, and there was silence in the room. Took like three minutes before anyone asked the question. And Richard Cross, who is uh, probably the most prominent Scotus scholar um, writing in English, uh, he, he says to me afterwards, like, nothing like a Scotus talk to silence a room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he is hard. But uh, so that lack of pedagogical sensitivity, the disorderly state of his writings, his early death, um, you know, and those three perhaps are related to each other. I think those explain a, in a big way why he's not um, why he's not better known. Though, though it should be said, and then I'll I'll stop. But it should be said that despite that that disorderly legacy, Scotus was was recognized for a long time as like the major thinker of the Middle Ages, either uh, second to Aquinas or alongside Aquinas. And just as we think of, you know, we have centers of Thomism today uh, in different parts of the country, different parts of the world, whole, whole schools or colleges devoted to Aquinas. It was like that for a long time in Europe where there were, there were Scotist chairs, Scotist centers um, that, you know, oftentimes institutionally were, 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 were operating alongside um, uh Thomist chairs. You know. So there was a, a much greater prominence of Scotism until the 19th century and the, uh, Leo, Pope Leo XIII's Eterni Patris, which 
enshrined Thomism as the official philosophy of the Catholic Church, led to a huge revival of Thomism. Um, a lot of really wonderful work came out of that that movement, but I think a, a consequence, an unfortunate consequence, was a kind of a sidelining of SCOTUS and even in some circles a um, a growing suspicion of SCOTUS, not just that he wasn't as as important as Aquinas, which is probably true, but that uh, there's something sinister about SCOTUS. And I think that polemic is really overblown, and I, I hope we'll talk about that later. But um, I think what we're seeing now is a, a rise, a serious rise, increase of interest in SCOTUS and a kind of maybe a, a rebalancing of the scales after um, uh, after 1879 and Leo XIII's Eterni Patris. Um, there's this bibliographic resource that's available on the internet uh, compiled by a great Scotist named Tobias Hoffman. And it's a, it's a, it aims to be a, a complete bibliography of everything written about Scotus or by Scotus that's published since 1950. And uh, maybe at the end of the conversation, I'll give you a link to that. But in the newest edition published August of this year, Hoffman notes to his surprise that within the last 10 years, there has been an explosion of research on SCOTUS. I mean, it's something like if you if if you think of the many thousands of entries in this bibliography from 1950 to the present day, something like 30% of them have been published in the last 10 years. So it just shows that the SCOTUS is on the move. <laughs> and we'll see what be, we'll see what comes of it. I I hope that um you know not that I, my hope for Scotus is not that he'll somehow overthrow Aquinas. Uh, that I think that would be silly, but that he would come to be well regarded as truly one of the greats of the of the Christian tradition. Very helpful, and it sounds like we need a movie or some sort of detective novel on the end of his life that's all mysterious. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe that would make Scotus great again in some ways. So. I do want to riff now. I know we've there's like ten different things I'd like to ask you about Scotus's thought, but you mentioned the suspicion and how that sort of the story of how uh, in the what I think you said nineteenth or twentieth century Thomism becoming enshrined and that has the residual effect of sidelining Scotus in some ways. And I'm a Protestant, and I think probably a good chunk of our listeners are Protestant, and they've become, I think most of them, very interested in Thomas Aquinas and things related to it, So, but they don't have that Thomas is the official teacher of the Protestant Church, and yet there still is a similar sort of thought process of um, Scotus is suspicious for various reasons. And in my head, I think some of those reasons might be related to, I think we talked about it before, voluntarism, univocity, or even his view on divine simplicity— so I'm curious in your mind, what is it that are the primary reasons that people have suspicion uh, for just him as a, a, as a person? So if somebody said, hey, I'm a Scotist, they naturally think, are you revising various classical doctrines? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and I, I think you're right to focus on univocity and voluntarism as the, as the aspects of his thought that give people pause. And simplicity too, I mean, that's... Fair uh, to to raise that as a as another possibility. I mean, I think that that one has been less um, 
you know, talked about than than the other two issues of in Scotism. But but I think it's there too. Maybe I'll try to say something brief about all three. But the yeah, so the univocity thing, the idea, the idea is this: that um, you know, Aquinas famously teaches that the words that we use to talk about God, when we uh, use them to talk about God, we use them in some way that it's analogous to the way that we use them when we talk about creatures. And Aquinas, it's it's well theorized in Aquinas. He has good reasons for thinking that. It has to do uh, with you know things like the the fact that our our language is uh, structured by our concepts which are themselves structured by created being um, so when we try to uh, use those very same words structured in that way to talk about God you know there's gotta there's got to be some difference in what those words mean um, not complete difference that would be crazy some unified but but real difference between these ways that words get used to talk about creatures and God and Aquinas calls that analogy. Um, and so it preserves God's transcendence, uh, but while also preserving the intelligibility of theological discourse, really important, both, both, <laughs> transcendence and intelligibility. So then Scotus comes along and he says, um, not uh, equivocal, but univocal. Now, Aquinas had explicitly rejected univocity. Um, Aquinas, excuse me, Scotus explicitly affirms univocity. So it looks like Scotus is going to be guilty of what Aquinas thought a univocity theory would be guilty of, which is making God not transcendent, making God somehow a part of this world accessible by uh, our concepts, which themselves are shaped, structured by the nature of created being. And so, um, so that looks bad for, uh, it's good for preserving intelligibility, you might think, but at the cost of transcendence. So sometimes the, what is supposed to be pernicious about Scotus's univocity theory is that it makes God one being among many. It flattens, uh, the, the, the God creature, um, gap and all of that. Now, I think this is um, this charge against Scotus is at best ignorant, and at worst, it's just calumny. If anyone actually reads the texts where Scotus talks about univocity and reads other things that Scotus has to say about God's transcendence, how radically different God is from creaturely reality. You just could not think that Scotus's theory of univocity amounts to that sort of metaphysical flattening that he's accused of. So I really think that this needs to stop. That natural that that theologians and philosophers need to stop levying this charge against Scotus. Um, like just read more. If you've if you've fallen into that error, just read more. Um, That's helpful, and I'm glad. I want to have you tease yeah. that out a little bit more because. It seems to me, as I've read Scotus, now I haven't read Scotus as much as you, probably a minuscule amount of reading of Scotus, but it seems that they are not, when he talks about univocity, and when Aquinas talks about univocity, they're not really attacking the same sort of thing. It almost seems, at least on my reading, Scotus's explanation of it makes way more sense um, with 
what Thomas is actually saying. I I don't know. I think Thomas seems like Scotus isn't denying that there's some big difference between language. He's not saying um, that when I use the word God is love, I am love, that these are the exact same thing with all the exact same attailments. Uh, he's just trying to say, we are talking about the concept of love. We're talking about this idea of, you know, this, I don't know, this eternal willing of the good towards something. Um, all the entailments can be different. God is completely loving. I'm not. Uh, he's eternally loving. I'm not eternal. He's uh, always thinking of all the different good things that go into it and putting it in there, and I'm not. So when, at least on my reading, you could tell me if I'm wrong, seems Scotus is not saying, like, everything's univocal. It's just making sure that the concept we're talking about is the same thing, which is what I think analogy seems to require, is that you have this concept that we are talking about, but all the stuff that goes on to it, it kind of attaches to it, can be different and change. Am I thinking about that right? Yeah, I think you are. I, I think that's exactly right. Um, and, and in particular, that um, what Aquinas means by univocity and what Scotus means by univocity are not the same thing. I mean, uni- univocity is not a univocal term. <laughs> um, and, and that Jordan, I think you're right that what, when it comes to a theory about how, how words work, what Aquinas calls analogy is much more similar to what Scotus calls univocity um, than the than the repu- than than scholars many scholars are willing to admit. You know, when you go back, we probably don't want to get in the weeds too much on this, but it's worth noting that part of what motivates Aquinas to reject univocity is is that he thinks a, a univocal theory of terms would require a univocal understanding of the causal relationship between God and creatures. Um, to, for a cause to be a univocal cause in the medieval tradition means that it's a, it's a cause that produces an effect of the same nature as itself. So human parents are univocal causes of their children. Um, but say the sun, which has in this worldview some sort of causal role in the production of uh, all life on earth, the sun would be an, an analogical or equivocal cause of children because its nature is different from the nature of the kids. So Aquinas says the the causal relationship between God and creatures is, of course, non-univocal in that causal sense of univocity. And he infers from that that our language, uh, that the, the predicates we use to talk about both God and creatures cannot be univocal. Now, in that sense, I think Scotus would deny that that a theory about univocal causation doesn't entail anything one way or another about a theory of univocal terms. Um, so in that sense, there would be a real difference between Scotus and Aquinas. But in terms of what, like, the theory that they end up uh, espousing, I think there's, there is a lot of, despite their different you know, ways of getting there, uh, what the theory amounts to is, Jordan, I think you're, you're right, that they are compatible. Um, what, what matters for both, I think more than anything else it, is that we've got to have a way of reasoning validly from, uh, features of creatures to features of God, recognizing that, um, you know, what ends up, what we end up predicating of God in the conclusion of a syllogism, 
uh, is going to be very different from uh, that predicate as applied to creatures, but that the meaning of the term has got to be sufficiently unified to preserve validity. That's what Scotus cares about, and he calls that univocity. That's what Aquinas cares about, and he calls that analogy. Yeah, so what, one interesting way, maybe for, um, your, for all your listeners, Protestant and Catholic alike, is to, to think here of uh, Pope Benedict XVI's um, Regensburg address uh, back in 2008 or nine. Anyway, it, it caused a lot of controversy at the time, uh, primarily because he criticized Islamic theology of the Middle Ages as uh, holding to this um, you know, absolute, unconditioned, divine willing that is not bound in any way uh, by goodness or by reason, you know, that the God of Islam is just unconditioned willing. He criticized that sort of voluntarism um, as you know, ne- negating a natural law, negating the uh, uh, human's ability to discern what's good, in some sense independent of, of divine commands. And in the context of that critique, he, he's, he laments that there arose within European intellectual s- culture a similar kind of voluntarism and he singles out Scotus, not so much as himself espousing that sort of voluntarism, but as somehow giving rise to um, that kind of voluntarism. Now, it's hard to know exactly what he had in mind, whether he was thinking of Scotus's texts or thinking of uh, sort of intellectual histories that, that kind of pin this on Scotus. But the... Um, I think what's like so the the question is is it is Scotus's voluntarism the sort of thing that people should be suspicious about and that I mean I guess I'd say no but then there's a fine line right between disagreeing with a theologian about some topic and because you think it's wrong and dis, and disagreeing with some theologian about a topic because not only is it wrong, but you think it's like evil or bad. <laughs> and I think that, you know, I'm, I don't think that everyone is, is going to be a voluntarist at the end of the day, even the moderate sort of voluntarist I think Scotus is. But at the same time, I think he avoids what's supposed to be crazy about voluntarism. So here's, here's an example of what's supposed to be crazy about an extreme voluntarism. Um, Occam says, that we are obligated to love God above all. Okay, that sounds nice. But he also holds to this view of divine freedom, according to which he says God can do anything uh, that is not logically contradictory. Now, consider the possible divine command. Uh, God commands you to hate him. (laughs) Is that logically possible? Occam says, yeah. So Occam imagines a situation in which God could command us to hate him and it would be right of us to hate him, but that it would be impossible to hate God in such a way as to obey 
as, as, for, as for that hatred to constitute obedience to such a command. So, so it's possible for God to command it. It's impossible for humans to perform it as an act of obedience. But Akov says it doesn't matter. God, nothing constrains God's willing or commanding except logical possibility as such. So that's crazy. And then because we don't know uh, whether God has in fact commanded something, maybe he's commanded it but not told us, there would be nothing, no, no obligation on God's, God's part to tell us. Um, we, we also can easily generate a skepticism about right and wrong from an extreme voluntarism of the sort that Occam um, holds. Now, so I wish, I kind of wish that Pope Benedict would have singled out Occam here, because although there are voluntaristic themes in Scotus, it's really, it's really Occam who lived a generation after, two generations after Scotus, who, who really gets that bad sort of voluntarism going. Now I say that, I, I, I should say, you know, there, I'm sure you'll have plenty of your Protestant listeners who would who would welcome that sort of voluntarism. I mean, arguably, Calvin has that sort of view. Um, if you have, if you have a reformed audience, I mean, I'm speaking in, you know, for my reformed friends, I would be happy to, you know, sit down and have a conversation about this. I'm just, I'm just talking right now. I'm not being as nuanced <laughs> as it might be. Uh, but all that to say, Scotus builds into his understanding of, of God's willing um, to his understanding of right and wrong, certain constraints that prevent his emphasis on divine freedom from uh, like spinning out of control into this alchemist sort of picture of God's commanding. So this is this particular issue actually has been one of the more interesting and I think fruitful back and forths in the scholarly literature about Scotus over the last thirty years or so, um, where scholars have carefully staked out different views given the more extreme reading of Scotus, the less extreme and, um, and different views in between. Um, so while someone might carefully study all the texts and come down on the side of Scotus being um, maybe a more severe voluntarism than a lot of us would like, at the same time, I think it's, I think there's also a lot of evidence in Scotus that he was sensitive to the um, the kind of craziness that could result from voluntarism to the extreme, you know. And then um, the simplicity thing—that's good. It's good of you to bring that up. This is hard. Um, Scotus emphatically affirms divine simplicity, uh, and so then the question is: Are there uh, elements of his? metaphysics of theism that run against simplicity despite what he himself affirms about his own view. Um, so I just finished translating a short book of Scotus called uh, De Primo Principio, a treatise on the first principle. And it, um, in the first three chapters, it tries to establish the existence of a first cause or first principle. And then in the fourth chapter, it tries to derive various attributes that this first principle must have um, attributes sufficient to make that God, so that we, you know, th th so we don't have a a first principle that we can't worship, you know. And so, one of the attributes that he derives in the fourth chapter is simplicity. Um, in a closing prayer of that, he 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 
reaffirms his commitment to simplicity and says, you are simple. You are simple in the extreme. Um, so then you'd think, well, what could possibly be, be wrong with Scotus? But then he has this view, <laughs> the, the infamous formal distinction that, say, take two attributes of God, God's love, God's wisdom. All right, on a view of, of divine simplicity, any view of divine simplicity, you have to say God's love and God's wisdom are the same. The mystery about that is that when we use those terms, we can't think of them as the same. We just cannot do it. This is why simplicity is best understood as a result of negative theology. It's something that comes out of, uh, of, of a careful inquiry into what we cannot say about God. It's because we cannot say that God is composed in any way that we must affirm simplicity even though it remains at the end of the day utterly mysterious how divine love and divine wisdom are the same, how they're compatible, how they're mutually reinforcing and so on. That's all easy to see, but how they're exactly the same. No, we have two concepts. They're different concepts. We apply them both to God and they're supposed to end up being the same in God. That's mysterious. Scotus doesn't deny the mystery um, no more than Aquinas denies the mystery. What Scotus will say, though, is that in God, not just in our thinking of God, but in God, the uh, what he calls the, the formality or the formal ratio, meaning, account, nature of love, is different from the uh, ratio of wisdom. These are two rationes or two formalities that are in God but they are only merely formally distinct in God. They're not really distinct in God. And for Scotus, that means that they are really the same. So really the same, formally distinct. Now, is that supposed to be crystal clear? It's like, oh, now I see it. No, it's still mysterious. But what he does is he, he takes that uh, uh, difference in meaning of love and wisdom and he tries to find a way meaningfully to capture in his speaking about God, how these two attributes are different in some way, and yet in God are really the same. And that's, that's the conceptual tool he uses, formal distinction. Now, how different is that from Aquinas? Some might say, very. I'm not so sure. Aquinas is willing to talk about a sort of distinction he calls um, a distinction in reason on the part of the thing. So a mental distinction, ex parte rei. So the, what the ex parte rei is supposed to do there is to say that it's not just some distinction that, that is only going on in your own mind. It's a, it's a mental distinction that somehow is tracking some real differentiation in the thing itself that you're thinking about. Um, Alan Walter, one of the great Scotus scholars of the 20th century, speculated that Aquinas' distinction of reason ex parte rei and Scotus's formal distinction amount to the same thing. And I follow Scotus on I, I follow Walter on that reconciling reading of Scotus and Aquinas on simplicity. 
so, so Dr. Ward is, I guess your, your view is, is, is simply that, um, you know, similar to the way that they use language that it, it appears to be different on in some ways, but really when you get down to it, it's not different. And it's just, you know, SCOTUS is leaning towards using, you know, university and, and Aquinas leaning towards analogy that they work out pretty much the same thing with simplicity, but in those kind of frameworks, is that, is that correct? Am I following you on that? Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, you know, if we wanted to get in the weeds here, we could say that uh, Aquinas later in his career seemed, seemed to stop using that particular distinction. So maybe he moved to a stronger understanding of simplicity. Um, or we might say that uh, uh, Scotus was more bothered by the uh, the paradox of affirming as identical things that to us can't be seen as as identical, um, but that there is so, but that there is still a lot of uh, similarity between their views, despite again, despite what intellectual historians sometimes say. Now, I mean, I think that, yeah, I, I think I'll leave it at that. I mean, of, of course, there's more to be said. I, I myself am still, I, I'm supposed to write a paper on SCOTUS on simplicity. And, you know, to work out the technical stuff, it is very, very difficult. I'm struggling with it. But um, but I think we, we can hold on to, we can take SCOTUS at his word that when he affirms divine simplicity, he really means it and tried to make it work. He wasn't, he wasn't being deceitful or, you know, trying to undermine the tradition or anything like that. He, he affirmed simplicity and then did his best to try to work out what that might mean using the philosophical tools that he had at his disposal. But, but, but at the same time, kept hold of what I think every natural, every theologian needs to keep hold of, which is that simplicity, uh, we, we can reason to it, again, in this negative way that I mentioned, but we cannot make sense of it. And and, and I think as if, 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 you, if you think that you understand simplicity, you don't, you just don't. <laughs> no yeah. one does. That, I think that's a helpful caution because I do think, at least for our Protestant listeners there who have become really enamored and interested in divine simplicity, there's a danger of making it a positive doctrine when I think it's supposed to be negative. Um, and then an interesting tidbit, I was just reading uh, Gisbertus Voetius. I don't know how to say his name, so some nerdy person can tell me how to pronounce it correctly. Reform thinker in, what, 17th century, I think, uh, over in... Um, he was at, I think he was at Utrecht, I mean, I'm picking all the things that I can't pronounce and trying to say them on a recording right now, um, but very influential reform Utrecht. thinker. And he, yeah, and he basically says the same thing as you are, where the Scotist and the Thomistic version, while they have, you know, different emphases or different terminological usages, they're fundamentally compatible. In the, and what makes them compatible is they're both trying to get at the same strong affirmation of divine simplicity. So he ends up saying, I think the Thomas route makes more sense a little bit, but he's like, but the Scotus route is just, is trying to do the same sort of thing. So I think, um, that's great. S send me that, um, send me that yeah. reference when, uh, when you get a chance, I'd appreciate it. I'd, I'd like yeah. to look at that. 
I'll do that. And one other thing I wanted to hear you talk a little bit about is SCOTUS on the created order. So SCOTUS on like nature's, especially, I know you did your dissertation on hylomorphism on in SCOTUS. I mean, is his view of things like human persons when it comes to hylomorphism significantly distinct from how most people would understand hylomorphism? Does he have emphases that are different than others in in that area? Yeah, he does. And from a a modern perspective where hylomorphism is um, a kind of boutique, uh, exotic view to hold about material objects, though I should say increasingly less so, less exotic. But um, to understand the differences between medieval hylomorphists and how seriously these debates were, um, it's it, it can seem a little a little cute compared to, from from a contemporary point of view, you know, the, the way that people make fun of scholastic philosophers as having debates about how many angels could dance on the, the tip of a pin. It can kind of seem like that. But um, Scotus, along with just about every scholastic thinker um, working in this broad Aristotelian tradition, held that um, material objects in general, human beings in, in particular, were somehow composites of matter and form, where in the case of a, a human being, the form is the soul, the, the intellectual soul, as they would put it. Um, so, and this is this has become a, a fairly prominent position in kind of the, the literature on dualism versus materialism. You know, maybe you know Eleanor Stump long ago, um, uh, that book by Moreland and Scott Ray about. You know, maybe a kind of Thomistic dualism splits the difference between materialism and uh, and Cartesian dualism. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And in that basic framework, at that level of generality, there wouldn't be much to distinguish Aquinas from Scotus. But but their but their view is different and and definitely not reconcilable. Um, uh, like some of the other topics that we've talked about. But you know the the debate, the, the medieval debate about hylomorphism was could one material substance have more than one form? Right. Okay. <laughs> now, the idea that what, what animated this debate was the, the crucifixion, actually. So Christ dies. Christ is fully human. So he has human soul, human body. Death, whatever else it is, is the, so the separation of soul and body. Christ's human soul continues to exist. Christ's human body continues to exist. How, does, how can hylomorphism account for this view? Well, on Aristotle's understanding of hylomorphism, once uh, matter and form are separated, whatever matter is left over um, is, no, is no longer metaphysically continuous with the organism uh, whose matter it once was. So a corpse, you might say, well, it's what remains after someone dies. But on Aristotle's strict view, it's actually not the case. The corpse is a new substance, or perhaps substance is, like, you know, the, the soul leaves and the body just returns to its basic constitutive elements 
um, and gradually d d decays and dissolves. There's no form, so to speak, binding it all together. So we get a real substantial change when we have a corpse. Now, uh, if that's the case, then when Christ dies, his body is no longer a human body. It's no longer informed by a human soul. Uh, there's no other form that it has on the traditional view. And so it's it looks like a human body, but it's not. And then there were, so what's supposed to be weird about the wrong about that? Well, it it was right to venerate the corpse of Christ, you know, to, 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 em, to embalm it, to spice it, to wrap it. It was good of the holy women to visit Christ's body in the tomb. Um, but that veneration wouldn't make sense if it wasn't metaphysically continuous with something that was Christ's. Uh, so some... Some medieval scholastics in the Franciscan tradition started speculating that maybe Aristotle's theory could be tweaked, that we could say that there is a substantial form of the body and also a substantial form that is the soul, and that these can be coordinated to create one and the same, to, to, to constitute one and the same organism. So on this more complex view, we would have prime matter, and uh, in a form of the body, and that's then you get it. Then you get a body, and then that body itself is informed by the rational soul, and so the whole composite human being is like three principles: matter, form of the body, form that is the soul. And then when Christ dies, soul and body are separated, but the body that remains is identical with the body that was informed by the soul. And so then you get a nice metaphysics of metaphysical explanation of why it was uh, appropriate to venerate the body. Now, just how uh, uh, compelling that sort of reasoning is, you know, as I've uh, shared this with people, some people are moved, some people are not moved by it. But yeah, so Scotus developed his what's sometimes called pluralism about substantial form in, in light of this uh, Christological conundrum. And so one thing I like to, whatever anyone thinks about the actual view or whether that's a good reason to have the view, the, the mere fact that Scotus was inspired to do metaphysics by reflection on uh, this key theological topic to me, is one little insight into the way that his that his mind works. You know, he yeah, he had a lot of creativity, a lot of rigor. He's an intimidating thinker, etc. But there was always this faithfulness to the Christian tradition, whether he was doing theology proper or whether he was doing metaphysics. He was doing it in the light of uh, the Christian revelation, and I think that's. You know, as a kind of strategy, uh, as a as a way of going about intellectual work. Um, again, whatever one makes of the conclusions he comes to at the end of the day, that sort of method has been deeply inspiring to me. Something I hold myself to, and that I try to pass on to uh, anyone who will listen to me. 
Yeah, no, that's really good. Now, remind me again who the publisher is for the book that you just wrote on him. The publisher is Angelico Press, and the book is called Ordered by Love, an introduction to John Dunn Scotus. Cool. And Hunter, did you want to ask anything? I mean, I guess I could ask one, one question, a uh, brief question. I mean, I know many of our pastors are interested in being connected to the great tradition in their churches. And you're talking through with SCOTUS and you're, you know, you're placing him within that great tradition, but also distinct in that. Uh, what, what advice would you give to pastors in light of that, of being humble in some of the intramural debates that we might have about certain things? How does, how does SCOTUS guide us to be a, you know, a faithful pastor to the, to the great tradition, but also humble in our claims where we might have disagreements with our other brothers who are seeking to be connected to the great tradition? Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, I, like two, two examples come to mind that I think are worth, worth sharing in this context. You know, for all of Scotus's smarts, um, he couldn't always see his way to the, to the view that he believed to be the truth. Now, so, so the examples have to do with like weird Catholic stuff, but if, if you just like sort of take the spirit, um, I think it's, it's generally applicable. But, you know, Catholics hold to the transubstantiation of the Eucharistic elements. And, um, and, so, and Scotus affirmed that. He had no doubt about that. Um, that's what the church taught, so he accepted it. But in his own attempt to work out you know, the, an account of Eucharistic change, he actually thought that consubstantiation made more sense. Like, if you're just reasoning uh, through whatever the biblical language is, is, the biblical data, and then the metaphysics that he like puts to work on top of that, uh, he thought the best account is consubstantiation. But he rejects consubstantiation. Now, that would be an irrational thing to do if he, if he argued that transubstantiation was incoherent, right? Because then he would be saying, yeah, transubstantiation is incoherent, consubstantiation is coherent, but I'm going to take transubstantiation because that's what the church teaches. That would be that, that divorce of faith and reason uh, that we see in Occam all the time. Um, Scotus didn't think that. Transubstantiation is coherent, but as far as reason could get Scotus, he thought consubstantiation was a more fitting theory, like, like had more explanatory power, less mystery, um, but rejected it in favor of transubstantiation. Another similar topic um, is the immortality of the human soul. It was um, supposed to be, it's, it's a matter of faith that the soul is immortal and plenty of philosopher, Christian philosophers and theologians have thought that philosophy could demonstrate that the soul is immortal. Scotus thought he couldn't do it. He couldn't figure out how to demonstrate the soul is immortal, but he, but he held it anyway because it's the teaching of the church. So what we see here is a, is a deference, like high-level intellectual effort uh, that is ambitious but not arrogant. Right? The arrogance would be like you follow, you follow your own mind because you're convinced of your powers to get at the truth. Um, and so even when your own mind starts coming up against the, the tradition, uh, you say, well, to hell with the tradition. I'm going to follow my own way. And that's, 
that that's a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for schism. It's a recipe for you know self you know for 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 pride and uh, all of that. Scotus Scotus avoided that. I mean, there are t- there are moments where you know he seems a little like too curt with his opponents, or you know like kind of nagging, maybe a little mean every now and then. Not not pervasively, but I think there's this fundamental orientation to be deferential to the tradition uh, as he understood it, such that even knowing his own brilliance, uh, he was willing to say, nope, I I must be wrong. I can't see my way, but I must be wrong. That's a good word. So one last thing I want to ask you is just remind everybody who's listening, what's your website so they can go check out all the material that you've got? Thanks. It's, It's Thomas M ward.com and it's uh it's not a lot up up there but uh yeah you can find find the book there yeah no that's good stuff well i appreciate you talking with us about scotus and everything and i encourage everybody to go ahead and get a copy of the book Um, i'll link to it uh, as soon as it's available since november 8 is right around the corner i can add that in and have that ready to go for you guys so thanks for everybody tuning in to the only analytic baptist and confessional podcast on the planet And we'll talk to you guys soon. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.